First Peter 4, 7 through 11 is our passage. You know, the second coming of Jesus Christ is the most momentous, most significant, most impactful event that is coming in the, in the near future. Um, it is the most relevant topic that we can ever preach because from it flow the most important questions in life. Think about of all the most important questions in life, what are they? These may not be the ones that you think of. How do I prepare for the second coming? How do I get a reward from Jesus when he does come? What does God expect from me here on earth in the meantime? What things in life are truly important and what things are only temporary? And our world literally has those things backwards, don't they? They, they, they do. Everything's about the temporary. The second coming of Jesus Christ changes everything now and will change everything when it occurs. Because when Jesus comes, think about it, folks. When Jesus comes, um, eternity is set for every individual who has ever lived. It's set. And there's nothing more that you can do about it. The, it's set. So why do I say this? Because Jesus repeatedly taught that when he returns, the first event on his timeline is judgment. Look at all the parables, whether it's the parable of the talents, the parable of the minas, uh, the, the parable of the unjust steward, whatever it is, all those parables are talking about when Jesus comes back and he says, when I come back, the first thing that happens is judgment. Now, there's two. One is the judgment of reward for believers. The other is judgment of punishment for unbelievers. So believers get eternal reward. Unbelievers get eternal damnation. And so when you think about it, that the fact that our actions and our attitudes here and now determine what our life looks like, not for 70 years, not for a 100 years, not even for a 1,000 years, but for all of eternity, that changes the way we think about it entirely, doesn't it? And that means that we need to think about it in a sober manner. The teaching about the second coming allows us to set our priorities, priorities in work, in our community, in, in family, in, in our vocation, in our faith. And so Peter uses the truth of the second coming of Christ to remind us of things that should be important to us. If you look in your Bibles, the two verses prior to the ones that Cameron read say this, for this is why the gospel was, I'm sorry, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There's the judgment of Christ at the second coming. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that through though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And he transitions by saying this little phrase, the end of all things is at hand. By mentioning the end of time, he elicits two attitudes from from, the, from his readers. And I would say that you probably can pick up on it. Number one, there's a sense of urgency, isn't there? The end of all things is at hand. Secondly, uh, simplicity. In other words, 
what are the most urgent things I need to take care of knowing that the end of things is at hand? Number two, let's simplify that list and get it down to what's really important. And, and we do that all the time. Some of you are old enough to remember the, the, the eruption of Mount St. Helens. Remember that? Uh, 1980? One of the most interesting pieces of footage that came out of that was a, I believe it was a reporter. I don't know. I was 12 years old when it happened, but it was a, I think it was a reporter and he was up near the volcano. And when the volcano erupted and the uh, pyroplastic flow, I think is what they call it, was coming at him. He had his video camera on and the guy is running as fast as he can and he's using words I don't I don't use this phrase but he's saying oh my god oh my god my god save me he and everything his whole life got condensed down to uh what is important in life and what is important right now in in an interview he talked about that sort of thing and so when there's an urgent thing coming up we simplify our lives and and live with a sense of urgency. And so when Peter says the end of all things is at hand, he means that all the major events in God's plan of redemption have occurred, and now all things are ready for Christ to return and rule. And his resurrection way back 2,000 years ago, and then his ascending into heaven, by doing that, Jesus has removed um, all the the... The blocks, if you want to say that, all the, 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 the little hurdles for his coming back and ending salvation history. The last major event in a redemption timeline is here. So practically speaking, Peter gives us four practical instructions for how we ought to live in light of this. And we live in a hostile world. We live in a world that's hostile to Christianity. It's hostile to one another. There, we have hostile takeovers. We have hostile relationships. And we could go on and on. Hostility um, is one of the things that characterizes our world. And so the Christian community then is a place where we ought to be able to come where there is not that hostility. Wouldn't that be nice? They try to manufacture in schools safe places. No bullying. This is a safe place, right? How's that work, teachers? Yeah, it doesn't, does it? And what, but what Peter is doing is, if you look at it, look at verse 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. And then he gives this list of four things that we're going to get into, how we need to react. And then he says, there's one reason for it. What's verse number 11? in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so we're doing these things as a church in order that we may glorify God in Jesus Christ. And what we are doing with these four outwardly focused attitudes and actions is trying to create an others-centered culture in an incredibly me-centered world. Now I'm looking at people who I know have come from other churches. And what we're going to get into in just a moment, this is my introduction, but what we're going to get into, what you're going to see is Peter is talking to people who are living in a hostile environment, and he is giving them instructions, exhortations, to create an environment that is not hostile, but rather a loving community where you can be open and be yourself. But many of you have a church experience that is not that way at all. 
You came from a church where maybe people were judgmental. You came from a church where maybe the pastor was a bully. You came from a church where people didn't live by the Spirit and they gossiped and they said hurtful things and so on and so forth. Frankly, these things ought not to be in the church. And Peter very clearly says that this ought to be a place where Providence Bible Church ought to be a place where when somebody visits who has no church background, they see that this is different and they can tell that this is a, a place where they can be themselves, say what's on their mind, and, and not have uh, to worry about covering themselves and being something they're not. So with that, what does Peter say? What are the four practical instructions for the church? Number one, because the time is near, practice holiness so that you can pray. Now that sounds really weird, doesn't it? But how does that other center? Well, let me get into it. Verse number seven. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. The world's a dangerous place. We have an enemy that wants to destroy our souls. Ephesians 6.11 calls the devil what the devil does. He calls him, he schemes. He's a scheming one. In chapter 5 of 1 Peter, turn to 1 Peter 5 and verse number 8. Look at what, it, what how he calls Satan here. This is Peter talking, his final instructions before he's done writing his letter. And he says, be sober-minded, be watchful, your what? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And hes it's not just the people who are not in church. He's seeking to devour every single person that's in this auditorium. He wants to make a wreck of your life. He wants you to deny Jesus Christ and his glory and all this sort of stuff. And so our response in verse number 7, chapter 4, verse number 7, our response then is to be sober-minded um, to, to, to be self-controlled. That's our response. Self-controlled means that we, we curb our passion. It, it means to think and be in your right mind. We're to be sober-minded. It literally means to not be intoxicated. When Peter uses that word in, in verse number seven where he says, be sober-minded, he's literally saying we should not be intoxicated by the vanities of the world. Isn't the world full of vanities? It's so easy for us to see the vanities of, of everybody else. <laughs> like, like um, okay, I'm a Gen Xer, and me, us and the baby boomers, we like to pick on millennials because they sit around watching YouTube videos all day. Or they, remember when, is it called Pokemon Now? Is that what it's called? Um, what Pokemon Go. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I gotta tell, can I tell a story about this real quick? So, most of you know that, that Heather and I moved from Pound, Wisconsin, population 377. We used to take this walk, it was a three mile walk, and we would go, um, it was a backcountry walk, so we were about a mile from town, we had this mile stretch parallel to town, a mile out, and we're walking down the road, and all of a sudden, here's this boy walking down the road, he's about 10 or 11, and he's got his phone. What on earth is he doing? He's playing Pokemon Go in the middle of nowhere. Anyway, where am I going with this? We can point out the vanities 
of everybody else. Millennials look at boomers and say, y'all have too much stuff. Your world's made of stuff and work, and we're all about family. And boomers are looking at millennials saying, your idol is your family. And we point out all the vanities of everybody else. And why are people Red Sox fans anyway? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Not really. But, but in, in seriousness, Peter's telling us that we should not get caught up in the vanities of this world, be sober-minded. Sin will cause our spiritual senses to be dulled. This is illustrated so well in the life of David. There are two distinct chapters in David's life. You ready for them? If you want to write the chapters of David's life down, you can view it very simple. Before Bathsheba, after Bathsheba. Before sin, after sin. And you read the narration in 1 Samuel and particularly in 2 Samuel. All the way up until 2 Samuel chapter number 11, David has discernment. David has bravery. David's got confidence. And this is because he's walking with the Lord. After Bathsheba, after 2 Samuel chapter number 11, you see that there is no spiritual discernment in David's life. I'm, I'm not kidding you. The, the picture is intentionally painted to show his lack of discernment. I mean, um, think about some of the things that, that we see in David's life after his sin. David didn't notice the lust of Amnon for his sister Tamar, did he? He sent his son who lusted after his half-sister, he sent his sister to go minister to him. Remember that? How undiscerning he was. Um, he, he didn't notice... Uh, that uh, he didn't punish Amnon for raping Tamar. He didn't see the hatred of Absalom for Amnon, and so he allowed Amnon to go to his death with his brother Absalom. David lost Absalom to his son's self-imposed exile. He didn't go after him, even though he longed to see him again. The other thing that is evident is David lost his boldness. He was afraid of everything. He fled Jerusalem when his own son was trying to take over the throne. He was he was indecisive. You see that picture being painted. And, and where he was bold and fearless and facing the enemy, now he was afraid, almost of his own shadow. And David... David's life is a reminder to all of us that when you become intoxicated by the world's vanities and are overcome by sin, you lose your spiritual discernment. And so what, G, what Peter is saying is the end of all things is at hand. Be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers because of this. Jesus' instructions were watch and pray. Watch and pray. And so your other focus, and so I see, you know, I'm just gonna, since you were up here, Cameron, Cameron might be having a hard time. I say, there's something going on with Cameron. Lord, I don't know what's going on with Cameron. He seems a little bit discouraged. I want your grace to be poured upon his life. You see another person, they're going through a trial, and you say, Lord, so-and-so, they're, they're having a difficulty. Will you please strengthen them in this trial? You see another person, and you can tell that, that Satan is on them, and, and they're, they're wavering, and so you pray for them, Lord, that I can tell they're wavering. Would you please strengthen so-and-so so they will not sin? That's what Peter's talking about when he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. To be a holy person for the sake of your prayers because we're in this together and, and we're other focused on this. 
So we need spiritual discernment. But there's a second thing. And that is we are to earnestly love one another. Look at what he says in verse number uh, 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Did you see how he started it out? Above all. Love is of supreme importance. It's a controlling factor in all of our relationships in the church. It controls our forgiveness for, of one another. We lovingly show hospitality. We lovingly serve one another. We lovingly speak as the oracles of God. Love controls our language and our actions, not, not, um, not frustration and fear and suspicion. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. How are we to love one another? We're to do it earnestly. That word is so interesting. It means at full stretch. It literally means you're stretching as far as you can. And the picture is either stretching this way, loving, or you're being stretched. You ever feel like you're being stretched by life? Peter said that we're to love one another at full stretch. And why are we to do this? Why are we to love one another at full stretch? Because this kind of love... When you have this kind of love, it's going to stretch your life. There's not going to be room for me time in this kind of life. Think about how Jesus was stretched. How many times in the Gospels did Jesus go to a place to rest or to pray and the crowds followed him? And the crowds were hungry. And he even pointed out the needs and met the needs. That's the kind of the love that loves at full stretch. So, dear Christian, are your, are your spiritual eyes open enough to perceive when you need to pray for someone else and when you need to love for someone else? In, in, in the New Testament, love is, is, and unity with practical care for one another is not an optional part of our life. It is central part of our faith. But we don't love like that, do we? We don't love like that. Let's be honest. Our love looks more like what? There's Jane over there. She has some hygiene problems. She's a little smelly. I hope I don't have to sit by her this morning. There's Bill. Man, Bill wears you out with his nonstop talking. I get a headache every time I'm around that guy. Kathy's unspiritual. Don doesn't get along with Evelyn. Fred treats his wife badly. Gene's an uncouth teenager, never knowing how to act with courtesy, disrespectful and everything else. Hillary often grumbles. And then there's Kevin. Kevin's a real saint, but man, that guy's boring. Now, none of these people are easy to love at full stretch, are they? But isn't that how we're supposed to love them? Do you love at full stretch? You know, if we have to stand through three songs and half a chapter reading, I'm going to be upset today. I know some of you are thinking that. I'm a mind reader. But do you see what I'm talking about? To love at full stretch means that uh, we overlook these things. Love is central to everything we do. We only have a few days here on earth, so make it a priority. 
What is the result of this kind of love? I want you to notice this. Look at verse number 8 again. What's the result of this kind of love? Above all, keep loving one another since what? Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, what does this mean? I, I need to explain this. Does it mean that you overlook the sin of maybe the abusive father? Does it mean that you overlook the, the, the obvious sinfulness of some people? The answer is no. The kind of love that Peter is encouraging here is one that overlooks those little injuries and slights that we're not so sure you know, exactly what they're talking about. Let me illustrate it this way. Way back a long time ago in my ministry, I was a youth pastor. And uh, when I was going through youth ministry classes, they said, you've got to have a newsletter. Everybody's got to, you know, every youth group that's any kind of youth group has to have a newsletter. So I started making a newsletter. And that was back in the days when when you had a dot matrix printer and you also had clip art, these clip art books. And so you photocopy the clip art, clip it out. Put it on a piece of paper, a round dot matrix printer lines. Then you photocopy the thing and hope people think it looks good. You've been there, right? Kids, did you know that at one time there was not the Internet or digital cameras? And so, so I had this newsletter, and then this thing called desktop publishing came to life. Remember desktop publishing this, desktop publishing that? And so in the mid-90s then, I started making a real newsletter. And I would, I, uh, and we had a laser printer. We got a laser printer, man. That was revolutionary. I think the thing was like $1,200 for a 300 DPI laser printer that you can buy at Staples for less than 100 bucks now or something like that. And what I would do is I would get pictures taken. And I'd send them to the 24-hour developing place, get the pictures developed, because there were no digital cameras at that time, right? And then I would scan them onto the newsletter. Remember that? And then send the newsletter out. I was really impressed with myself, to be quite honest with you. And I loved doing it. And I, when I switched over and started putting pictures in instead of clip art, uh, that was that was great. The kids loved it. The parents loved it. About four or five months after after I'd done that, uh, this short little woman walked up to me whose um, whose daughter was in the youth group, and she looked up at me and she said, "You don't like my daughter, do you?" I'm like, "What?" And I'm thinking to myself, "Okay, uh, I wasn't ready for this." And she, I said, uh, "Well, I, I like your daughter. No, you you don't like my daughter. You know why?" I said, "Why? You you haven't put a picture of her." in the newsletter. And I wish I could say that this is one of those times when my mouth was running way ahead of my brain. But actually, my brain and my mouth were doing two different things at this time. And before I could stop myself, I looked at her and I said, you actually keep track of that sort of thing? She said, yeah. And I keep track of whose pictures you put in how often. I'm like, holy cow. And uh, anyway, um, it didn't go so well because my brain never quite engaged my mouth like it should have that night. Uh, I was young in the ministry, but where am I going with this? Where am I, where am I going is that love, that loves a full stretch, that loves earnestly, covers a multitude of slights and sins. 
And you need to be able to look at another Christian and give them the benefit of the doubt. I didn't get invited to, they didn't invite me to this. They didn't recognize me for that. Man, they must not like me or, or I can't believe this personal insult. You see what I'm saying? This is the kind of stuff that Peter's talking about. If you're keeping tabs, that's not love. If you're, if you're questioning somebody's motives in, in a bad way, that's not love. You really have to just look at them and say, you know what? I'm sure it's just an honest oversight. Let's move on. This kind of love covers a multitude of sins. Wouldn't that help us out so much more than walking around with a little bit of a grudge in our heart or, or a little bit of quietness, quietness in our heart towards that person? Whatever it happens to be, you know, pastor didn't tell me I did a great job on my solo today. I'm really upset or, or I've heard that one before. So when you love, let me sum this up. When you love, you avoid behavior that destroys relationships and instead you behave in such a way that promotes unity. Let's just face it. When you're close to people in the community of believers, things are going to occur that hurt people and they're inadvertent. They're not, they're not intentional. They can sow seeds of bad feelings and fuel ongoing cycles of deceit and hypocrisy and jealousy and backbiting. But instead of allowing that to happen, let love control you. Now, the big things have to be taken care of because they're against God as well. Let's watch these little things. Number three, am I meddling too much here? Number three, Peter's doing it, not me. Because the time is near, be hospitable to one another. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. What's that, what's that, uh, phrase? Friends are like fish. Um, is it three days and they both stink? Something like that. I don't know how it goes. I've heard it before. Friends and fish. I don't know. You don't have to tell me. So I've got the internet on my phone. <laughs> Remember, this is why this is important. Peter is writing to people at the time before Tom Baudet was alive. There was no Motel 6. And so when you came into a town, you were relying upon the hospitality of the people in the town. And when people came into a small town, like many of the towns that Peter was writing to, if you were a Christian, you would ask if there were any Christians in town. Because there's that immediate bond of fellowship, isn't it? And what Peter is saying, and especially because there were so many displaced people, feel free to show hospitality to strangers. Now, that's an oxymoron, hospitality to strangers. Do you know why? You know what the word hospitality, the, the word behind hospitality is? It means it's philozenos. You know what Philadelphia means? Philadelphia, brotherly love. Philozenos is stranger love, love for strangers. Show love for strangers. Show hospitality for strangers is what Peter is saying. And and uh, hospitality is a form of love and caring for strangers who might be Christians and likely will be the most burdensome kind of people. And so the takeaway for for us is that we should offer service to one another that is both humble and joyful. We should be willing to extend ourselves for other believers, shouldn't we? Show hospitality. Let's move on to the last one. Number four, use your gifts to serve one another. 
Use your gifts to serve one another. Let's read verses 10 and 11. As each one received the gift, use it to serve one another. As a good steward of God's very grace, whoever speaks, speaks as one of oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Use your gifts to serve one another. Now, how do we render that kind of service to other Christians? Well, first of all, let's notice the extent of that service. As each one has received a gift, the New Testament is very clear that each of us have one and most of us multiple spiritual gifts and talents. I'm not going to take time on this sort of thing because there's been so much said about spiritual gifts, but let me say this. Every single person is unique in their gifting is unique. All of us is a, have a combination of gifts. And when you add in our personalities, our, our abilities, and our life experiences, you have a unique gifting that is just like a fingerprint. Two people having the gift of serving can display it in two totally different ways because they have different abilities, they have different personalities, and they have a different past. You add in all these things, and your spiritual gift is unique. So everybody who's here today, who's a regular tender or a member, you have a unique spiritual gift. And, and what Peter says is that we are to use that spiritual gifting, that combination of things, to serve one another. You don't have to wait until you're an official member of the church. You just need to serve the Christians in your community. If you're not serving the church, then you're not on mission with God, bottom line, because the command is serve one another as good stewards of the gift. Now, each one has received a gift. That's the source. It's a spiritual gift. You didn't buy it. You didn't earn it. You didn't make it. You didn't even ask for the gifting that you had. Did you know that? Have you ever thought about spiritual gifts? And there's spiritual gifts I'd like to have that I don't have. But God didn't give them to me. God gave you your gifts. You didn't ask for them. There's nothing you could do to earn them. And so he is the one who is just handing them out. And then he starts building congregations. And he builds this congregation. It's, It's called a body. And the body works together to glorify the head who is Jesus Christ. That in all things... He might be glorified in us, right? So serve one another using your spiritual gifts that have been given to you from God. What are the objects? Well, language is simple. One another. God gives us those gifts to serve the whole. And then we're to be stewards. Stewards of God's very grace. You know what that word steward is? The word steward is a manager. That's all they are. They're taking care of somebody else's possessions. You know exactly how this works. We have, we live in Virginia, horse country. I don't, I'm not that familiar with it, but I know that there are horse farm, I don't even know what you call horse farms. Horse farms? Okay, thanks. So, I didn't know. You know, out west would be a ranch or something like that, right? So I didn't know what Virginians call it. Anyway. I'm just a past, I'm just a small town pastor who moved to the big city. That's, that's my, 
But I am quite sure that there are very wealthy people who own a farm that they don't live at. And they have hired somebody to take care of the farm and the horses. They're stewards. Yeah, they ride the horses. They feed the horses. They enjoy the horses and all that sort of stuff. They enjoy the property. It could be beautiful, beautiful property. Beautiful property. And they can enjoy it and take care of it, but it's someone else's. Your gifting was given to you by God. It's not yours. And so you use it. You take care of it. And you express it to use it for other people because God gave it to you. You see? We're stewards. Everything that we have is on loan. Let me just throw this out. I said this last week. Parents, your children are not yours. They are on loan to you from God. You're stewards of those little souls that are in your house. Speaking. What does he say? He says, whoever speaks, speaks as the oracles of God. You know what we're to speak to one another? Bible truth. That's not really that hard, is it? Bible truth. Speak as the oracles of God. I, I don't have time to unpack that. It's a really fascinating phrase in how it's used. We're to serve. We're to serve how? In the strength that only God supplies. If you have a serving gift, then you do that by God's strength. If you have a gift of helps or a gift in the area of administration or giving or mercy or discerning, some function of serving the body of Christ, then you better do it by the strength in which God supplies. You better be energized by the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit, Spirit-filled so you're not doing it in the flesh. Can I, I'm just going to be straight up. I've said this before. I'll say it again. My gift, as I can tell, is Preaching and teaching, that's my dominant gift. And I can't stand up here and rely upon the the ability that God gave me to preach to you guys. And so beginning at the very beginning of the week, I start asking God, God, please illuminate my mind as I study this this passage of Scripture. You wrote it. Please help me to understand the, the emphasis you have in this passage. Then later in the week, as I begin writing the sermon, I say, Lord, please help me to be able to craft a sermon to get on the level where the people are, what's going on in their lives, what their goals and desires are, what their sins are, where they need to be encouraged, where they need to be admonished. Please, Lord, help me. And then I transition Friday, Saturday, and especially this morning. God, the sermon's done. I can't, these are just words. It's only when your Holy Spirit takes your word and applies it to lives that it makes a difference. Lord, I need your strength. And that is so true in every single gift, whether you're working in the nursery. And by the way, I think if anybody needs strength, it's people to work in the nursery. I'm serious. I mean it. it. Or whether you're serving in the kitchen, whether you're a greeter, whether you're going to visit people in the home, whatever it is, do it in the strength that God supplies let him be the energizer. And what is the incentive? Let's look at this. All of us look at this. What is the incentive? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The incentive. 
is a second coming. We do all this. We live holy lives. We love one another. We're hospitable to one another. We use our gifts to serve one another for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ who will be revealed at His second coming and He gets the glory, not us. How does that sit with you, by the way? None of us has gifts and callings as splendid as Jesus Christ, do we? Few become, few in our world become glory, glorious leaders, and yet every single role is important in the church and otherwise. In the 2008 Olympics, there was a swimmer named Jason Lezik who was a relay specialist in the U.S. men's swim team that was dominated by a guy named Michael Phelps, right? who was pursuing an unprecedented eight gold medals. When Lezak arrived, he owned four medals prior to the Olympic relays, but he never won an individual medal. And some people uh, wondered why it seemed like he could never win the big race. Lezak was the anchor on the 400-meter freestyle relay. The U.S. freestyle teams had won the silver in the last two Olympics. In this race, the French team was favored, and the, the odds gave the French team a, a, a .6 second lead. And um, in the, I'm sorry, I messed that up. When the final guy was running, he was six-tenths of a second ahead of Jason Lezak. Their, their um, swimmer, his name was Bernard, his last name was Bernard, he was the world's best freestyle swimmer. And he was a six-tenths of a second ahead of Lezak from the American team. And if Lezak failed to catch Bernard, Michael Phelps, who had swum the first leg of the relay, would fail too. When Lezak entered the pool, no one gave him a chance to catch Bernard. Indeed, Bernard's half a body length length lead grew to body length. But Lezak kept working. In an interview later on, he said, I kept telling myself, you're at the Olympics. You can't give up. Apparently, Olympic athletes, they feel like giving up right at the moment when they're at the greatest stage of their life. With 30 meters to go, he began gaining on Bernard, who was losing steam. Pressing to honor his his, uh, pre-race boast of smashing the Americans, Bernard wasn't doing so well. With 10 meters to go, Lezak was almost even. People were screaming. He's catching up. With five meters left, the race was a dead heat when both of them swam towards the the timer on the end of the the lane. Lezak and Bernard seemed to touch the wall simultaneously, and I remember this race. I don't know if anybody else does. And when the scoreboard flashed Lezak's triumph, the man who couldn't win the big race won the gold with, listen to this, the fastest 100 meters of all time. The Americans crushed the world record by four seconds on the strength of a win by the relay specialists. And when that relay was over, who got the glory? Michael Phelps. For his part, Lezak who helped Michael Phelps get his eighth gold medal was happy to be able to do it. 
You may be sitting here today and you say, well, pastor, you know, I'm just a nobody. I don't have very many talents or gifts. I don't know if that's true or not. It doesn't really matter. Jesus Christ made you who you are before the foundation of the world. God gave you your personality, your gifting, your talents and abilities, your background, everything about your life. And he did it for one reason. It's not for your glory. It's for his. And the time is near. How are you glorifying Jesus Christ? Lord, we thank you for the Word of God, how practical it is. Nothing is more practical than studying the second coming, understanding that that's coming up because it affects how we live our everyday lives. Lord, as I prayed all week, I I ask that you will fill this church with people who are aware of the second coming who will love one another, who live holy lives and pray for one another, a church who shows hospitality to one another, and, Lord, a church that serves one another with the gifts of speaking and serving, and that you ultimately will be so honored and glorified by Providence Bible Church. I pray for those right now who have been making excuses. Lord, help them to decide that the glory of Christ is way more important than any excuse they have. For those who maybe are are discouraged, looking, thinking, well, I'm not like that guy, help them to glory in the fact that they're not like that guy because Jesus made them exactly the way they are. I pray for those who who maybe are are displaying a lack of love because they're holding a little grudge against somebody because of a, a slight or even a perceived slight or something else, Lord. I don't know what it is. I pray that love will cover the multitude of sins. And above all else, as we love one another, I pray that we will live holy lives. Keep us from sin. Keep us from from uh, the vanities of this world and keep us remembering what's so important. In Christ's name, amen.